We've got uh, the Higdons and the Alders out tonight. The Alders are traveling, and the Higdons, I don't know how they're out here. Um, what's that? They need to come for the class for teenagers, apparently, you know, since, they, since they've had a teenager. Yeah. So, y'all know. Ten, ten pounds, six ounces, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Jeremy, would you? Oh, you're eating. Uh, would you pray for us? Sure. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the uh, beautiful weather outside. We ask you to be with us. to do tonight, uh, a little different than what we've done so far. The first session, I'm going to lay out a few more basic things, and then the second, after we take a break, I want to come back and just kind of do an open forum uh, where you can ask questions, we can take topics. We still have some general topics to cover, um, but especially anything that pertains to anything we've talked about so far, but we'll just, like I say, open it up and let it go where it goes, and... uh, because I know you're anxious, you have some questions you want, and so we can just kind of explore some of those. We've got two more sessions after this. I'll remind you that we'll meet next Sunday, but then we're going to skip a Sunday because I'll be out of town, and then the last session we'll do when I get back. So um, we will be here next Sunday. Um, One of the questions that comes up, obviously, as we deal with our children, we won't always ask the questions that God uh, has set before us in terms of what's important, and the real question is how we approach our children. And Christians have disagreed about the subject I'm about to uh, address, but I'm going to address it from what I think the Bible tells us. And that has to do with the nature of our children. Uh, we could ask it this way, um, are our children sinners or saints? And maybe uh, that's kind of a loaded question in a way, um, because I, I'll go ahead and tell you the way I'm going to answer that is both. Um, we're all children of Adam, and therefore we are born as sinners. We have a sin nature. And so the newborn child is by nature a sinner, and given the time and the ability, uh, that child will express that sin. So as you're holding that cute baby and uh, so forth, just re- realize that all they're, right now they're cute, which is good, but they're planning. They can't, they're not mobile, and they're not articulate yet. But they are sinners. And so given the first opportunity to either articulate or uh, express themselves, they, they will do so in some, at some point, not in every case, but sin will come out because that's not just, um, uh, that's who they are. That's what they are. And so it's, it's, they can't help that. And so um, Proverbs 22:15 tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. And so we shouldn't be deceived by the outward cuteness of a child, though it's probably a good thing that they're cute, right? Uh, I remind you that uh, Adolf Hitler and Timothy McVeigh were cute babies probably as well. And uh, so it, we're, <coughs> we're concerned about how they turn out, not just how they start. We're happy about births. 
but birth is the beginning. It's kind of like the, the difference between a wedding and a marriage. The weddings are always these big hoop-de-doos and uh, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy. It takes six months for a 30-minute service and a reception and dresses and flowers and all that, but the real hard part starts as soon as that's over. That's the lifetime part. And so weddings are the beginning of a marriage. Births are the beginning of a life. Uh, well, really, conception is the beginning of a life. But birth is when we begin to obviously engage in this task of child-rearing. And so uh, 1 Samuel 16:7 says, For the Lord does not see as a man sees. Uh, for, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So we've said the title of this, the title is The Hearts of Our Children, that if we, it doesn't matter if we do everything else right, if we miss that, then we've missed the mark. And so uh, since I and you, we don't have the power in ourselves to change hearts, that's the supernatural work of God and the, and the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, nevertheless, here's what we do have. This is really important, I think, because sometimes I think uh, Christian parents make a mistake. Oh, well, my child's a sinner, and since God's got to do the saving and the converting, I can't do that, therefore I'm off the hook. I can just kind of kick back and, and wait. I can pray for them, maybe go to church, do, you know, do some general things. But here's what I'd like to challenge all of us about, is to remember that God himself gave us the tools and, and gave us the means, maybe a better way to think about it, for our children to believe. He gave us... Uh, first of all, we're believers. Second, he gave us his word. That's the main thing. Uh, and he, Paul told Timothy, from the time you were a nursing baby, you have known the scriptures, which are able to make you wise into salvation. So he's given us the remedy, and he's given us prayer, and he's given us, he's called for us in Deuteronomy, for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to make the word of God uh, something that's on our doorpost and talk about when we sit down, we rise up, when we lie down, we walk in the way that, uh, that our lives as examples, both in terms of where our passion and love is, uh, has to show forth. And you know kids see that. You, you can't fake that. They know uh, whether or not this is happening. As I mentioned earlier, uh, a loving father and mother, a husband and wife that love each other is the greatest gift uh, in, inside of, the, obviously, your faith in the Lord, your love for Jesus, your love for each other. Uh, all of those are the context in which your other instruction and discipline take place. So uh, it's easy to get those out of order and to think, well, if I have the right rules or the right curriculum or the right uh, child-rearing principles, but my husband and wife, husband and wife don't have a good relationship or we're kind of sketchy when it comes to our commitment to Christ and his church, then it'll still be okay. But I think there's a proper order here, so there's always a context for what we do. Um, while our children might learn in, uh, a particular expression of sin from another child, this is a pretty common thing, you know, your child comes home swearing like a sailor, uh, and you think, where did he pick that up? Well, that may indeed have happened. Uh, your child may, have, not only may, but indeed will readily pick up sin from other kids, but don't let that be an excuse. Your, you know, your little darling is a sinner, and while they may learn particular expressions of it from other children in other places, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it originates in their own heart, and we should not ever forget that fact. So we, as we look at them, we love them, they're the apple of our eye, the object of our affection, 
and we should remember they're, they're in, they have a need uh, that God only can meet. And so what that means, parents, is we're dependent ourselves. We're, we need to remember that we're children, and we have a Heavenly Father. Instead of us saying, we're going to do this by our own strength, it's critical that we're constantly going to Him and recognizing that this is, uh, like Paul said, I planted, Paulus watered, or is it the other way around? Paulus planted, I watered. God gave the increase. God has to give the increase to our work. It's, we've got loaves and fishes. We're like the disciples. Uh, we collected the few loaves and fishes, and now we're asking him to take those loaves and fishes and do something with them in our children. R.L. Dabney wrote this. <clears throat> so this is a longer quote, but I want to read it. It's worth hearing. I think he really uh, does a good job of, of helping us focus in on this point. He said, uh, Born in the likeness of our parents. That's the title of what he wrote here. It is an... It, it is enough for us to know that God, by his mysterious works of creation and providence, does empower human parents for this amazing result, the origin, out of nothing, of a new being, and that a rational, immortal spirit. How solemn, how high this prerogative. It raises man nearer the almighty creator in his supreme prerogative as master of all things, than anything else that is done by creatures on earth or in heaven. Angels are not thus endued. The responsibility of this relation is not fully seen by merely regarding the infant as a beautiful animal, organized in miniature after the kind of the parents. It is the mysterious propagation of a rational soul that fills the reflecting mind with awe. The parent looks upon the tender face, which answers to his caress with an infantile smile. He should see beneath that smile an immortal spark which he has kindled, but can never quench. It must grow for weal or for woe. It cannot be arrested. Just now it was not. The parents have mysteriously brought it forth, brought it from darkness and nothing. There is no power beneath God's throne that can remand it back to nothing, should existence prove a curse. Yes, the parents have lighted there an everlasting lamp, which must burn on when the sun shall have been turned into darkness and the moon into blood, either with the glory of heaven or the lurid flame of despair. Thus Satan saw that humanity had then but one head, Adam. By poisoning this, he would taint all the vast future body with spiritual death. Thus he vainly hoped, uh, thus he vainly hoped he would usurp that very power, the power of parentage, which God has bestowed to be the instrument of multiplying blessedness, and he would turn it into an inlet of spreading and boundless spreading boundless sin and misery. By poisoning the springhead, he would at once poison the whole stream in all of its widening course until it disembogued its uh, innumerable drops, each drop in the flood, a lost soul, into the ocean of eternity. Thus it is that we owe to this malignant perversion of God's plan of benevolence that every, that every parent now transmits to the child he loves, along with the gift of existence, the deadly disease of sin. These then are the two facts which give so unspeakable a, sol a solemnity to the parent's relation to his children. 
He has conferred on them, unasked, the endowment of an endless, responsible existence. He has also been the instrument, if the unwilling, yet the sole instrument, of conveying to this new existence the taint of original sin and guilt. Can the human mind conceive a motive more tender, more dreadful, more urgent, prompting a parent to seek for the beloved souls he has poisoned the aid of the great physician? How can you, O Christian, fail to bring your child to the great physician of souls to be healed of the deadly contagion you have conveyed, conveyed to him. And I, I just I remember when I first read that, I thought that was a powerful capturing of this, of both the beauty of bringing a child into the world, but also the awesome responsibility that we have in light of the condition in which they enter this world. And of course, we're thankful that God has given us the remedy in Christ. And so all of this is to still be kind of setting the table of why what we do every single day, moms and dads, and maybe especially moms as you're there day in and day out, and I know the weariness of the, the routines of, of just taking care of children and, and all of that, but moms and dads, what we do every day is the most important work on earth. We are setting out not just to populate the earth, but to populate eternity one way or the other. And so we want it one way. We want it in Christ. And so uh, your work is important. Your love is important. Your discipline is important. Your consistency is important. We know we're going to fail, but we also have remedies for that. The, the Word of God tells us what to do when we fail. And so it is a long trek, but an important one. And so it's the duty of parents to restrain, on the one hand, the sinful nature of our children and to direct their paths, to direct them in the paths of righteousness. So think of it in two ways. I've got to stop them from doing certain things they're inclined to do that are sinful. So restraint is part of my discipline work. But encouragement and instruction and example and direction in the right way, and so these are always juxtaposed against each other. Therefore, a child should never be left alone to decide for themselves except under the most controlled thing where you're as a parent saying, okay, I'm going to let my 10-year-old make this decision and live with the consequences as a way of teaching or something. And nothing life-threatening here, but in other words, unless it's a specific teaching tool in which you're trying to teach your child uh, consequences <clears throat> about something, and so you're, it's a managed deal where you're helping them learn to make decisions, that's different than just saying, oh, well, I'll let my child decide for themselves. Okay, if that was the case, they don't need parents, okay? That's why you decide things like what they are going to eat and what they're not going to eat. Okay? And we'll talk about that a little more. They're, they're, you need to be gracious and reasonable. and There's all kinds of things you need to do in those decisions, but you get to make those decisions at the end of the day. You decide what goes on their plate. You decide whether they eat it or don't eat it. And you decide what you're going to insist on and what you're not going to insist on. Now, there's, again, there's flexibility in this from parent to parent. How every household doesn't look just alike. But the, the key point here is we're not just leaving it to Johnny to make his own call about what's good for him and what's not good for him, about what's right and what's wrong. The goal, by the way, is to get him and, her, and, and, and your daughters to the place where they do. Self-government is the goal. 
Self-government under God is the goal. That's why I think things like democracy, which is a debatable subject for another night, but the only way that can even possibly work is in a self-governed society. Okay, but self-government under God is the goal, but in the meantime, God has put them in your government. You're the king and the queen, and they are the citizens in your little kingdom. And you, therefore, are going to be telling them what to do initially, explaining to them why they're doing it later, and then requiring, you're going to require them to do it all along, but the goal is for them to love the, the, the rules uh, that you've established and own it for themselves. That's the ultimate goal, but you don't start there. You start by telling your little children, this is what mommy and daddy say you're to do. Now do it. You don't need an explanation. The first thing you need to do is learn to obey. Then as you get older, we begin to explain, and if you don't understand, we, we may explain a little more. If you still don't understand, then do it anyway. Because you still have ultimately the same responsibility. I don't have to understand why God tells me to do something before I do it. God didn't explain to Adam and Eve why they shouldn't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat it. If you do, you'll die. He told them the consequences. He didn't tell them why. And, and that was what he expected of them. And that's what you're going to expect of your children. So, therefore, a child never left alone to decide for themselves. First... There's two things here. First, even without the influence of a sinful nature, they are ignorant. They don't know enough to make good decisions. Second, they do have sinful natures and will inevitably make choices that are rebellious toward God and self-serving. And I use that kind of in quotes, self-serving. It's self, maybe self-gratifying is a better word. Because in the long run, it's not self-serving. Sin is never self-serving in the long run. It always appears to be self-serving in the moment. So someone's, someone is going to influence and shape your children. It's not a question of if, but who is going to shape your children. And if you just kind of know that as a basic foundation deal, my children are not shaping themselves. Somebody is shaping them. Okay? It's either you or somebody else, or a combination. So, uh, Jesus says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's pretty strong language from Jesus. Well, that's how seriously he takes how we approach our children. This is really joyful, serious business. You know, a reason I throw joyful in there is to remind you that that, as believers, this isn't like, oh man, I've got Jesus starting to kill me if I let something go wrong here. No, I'm in Christ and I'm trusting him. But he's telling me this is how serious this is. These are my children. These are my children that I gave to you and I expect you to take care of them. And I take it very seriously if you don't. In Proverbs 24, 30 through 34, we have a picture of what happens when a husband neglects his responsibilities. I'm going to say something up front here. Uh, we're not going to have time in this class to develop every idea, but I mentioned some of this last week when I drew on the board. Okay, Husbands, you're the heads of your house. Okay? That's not a sexist statement. That's just a fact. It is inevitable. God made you that. 
And that doesn't mean you're, you're the one that's waited on. That means you're the chief servant. You're the chief lover. You're the chief giver. The chief provider. The chief protector. The chief feeder. Uh, that is what you're called to do. And if you are lousy at it, then that will be the dominant feature of your household. If you abdicate, that will be the dominant feature of your household. If you're abusive, that will be the dominant feature of your household. If you're a jerk, if you're a lazy bum, or if you're a godly man, that will be the chief feature of your household. Because that is the position you occupy. You occupy the position of leadership, of headship, which means you have the greatest responsibility and duty. You have a duty to God, as who, who you're an inferior to, and you have a responsibility for everything in your household. You're responsible for your wife. You're responsible for your kids. You should know what's going on. That doesn't mean you're micromanaging. You're working with your wife. You're working as a team. You are still responsible. If something goes wrong, you ought to raise your hand and say, I'm responsible. What happened? Maybe I, didn't, maybe I wasn't paying attention. I need to get more information. I, but one thing for sure, I need to be sure it doesn't happen again. Does my wife need some help? Do my kids need some help? Do we need instruction? Do we need correction? What do we need? It's my responsibility. I may not just hand the kids off to my wife and say, you raise the kids, I'll go earn the bacon. You go earn the bacon and you're responsible for the kids. You're the husband. You're the head of the house. God holds you responsible. Okay? We'll talk more about the wife's rule there. Remember, from the children's standpoint, you're one. It doesn't matter. Mom and dad's the same to them. Okay? But when it comes to the hierarchy and how God looks at it, okay, he looks at it, you husbands first. Now here's what Proverbs says about the husbandman of the vineyard. <clears throat> I went by the field of a lazy man and by the vineyard of a man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And there's the picture of the neglected vineyard. The husbandman of the vineyard, is he just let it go. He, he, he just didn't attend to it. And he said, I saw this picture. Not only do you have the thorns and the thistles, which is interesting given the parable of the sower and the seed, the thorns and the thistles choked out the word of God in the in lives of people who heard the word and then fell away, um, but also the stone wall, which was built to protect the vineyard from intruders and animals and others who would come in and destroy the vineyard. So he wasn't protecting the vineyard and he wasn't cultivating the vineyard. He wasn't taking care of it. He was sitting on his front porch and as it deteriorated around him. And that is the picture of so many households, unfortunately many Christian households. So, uh, we need to understand, I'm going to hit some topics here that uh, they are related, but maybe a little bit of a shift here. We, need to, we do need to understand that there is a difference in children. Some children, of course, are born to unbelieving households and others to, to believing households. Some have none of the benefits of God's covenant of grace on the face of it. Others have all the benefits. And so 1 Corinthians 7.14 talks about the children are made holy by even one believing parent. That is, God sees them as set apart and special. Um, 
We've already mentioned Romans 3, what advantage has the Jew or what profit is circumcision. We said the same thing could be said about baptism or being a Christian. Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Chiefly because your children have the Bible. They have the truth. <clears throat> and so, so while our children are sinners like us, they are also saints like us. That is, God views these are my people. These are the children of my people. I promise I'll be your God, and I'll be the God of your children and your children's children. So these are God's children. They have been grafted into the life-giving Christ, and they are partakers of all of his benefits. Uh, that is, his conditional promises. If you trust him and believe on him and do what he says to do, you're going to receive his benefit. Let me just say this. I'm not going to get into all the theology here of, of children and infants, but whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever, we're all, I believe here, evangelical Christians. We all believe our children need to know the Lord. But your children are going to believe whatever you tell them to believe. That's an idea I want you to think about. From the time you're a nursing baby. Now, we may debate over how that's going to play out in their lives. But I don't care if you baptize them when they're 8 days old or 8 years old or 18 years old. If you presume that that's all that matters is, well, we've been baptized or they joined the church or they raised their hand or they prayed a prayer and now they're going to heaven, I can relax. Then you've not understood what the Bible says about child rearing. Okay? It is a daily, uh, long-term thing that we're called to to raise our children in the faith. Your children ought never know a day that they didn't... Well, let me think of how, to, how I want to phrase this. Let me, let me put it this way. If you're, if you're a pagan and you're converted to Christ, that's going to be pretty dramatic. But if you were born in a godly Christian household that taught you God's word, had you in with God's people, prayed with you, loved you with you, uh, worshipped with you in the home and in the church, and that's all you ever knew, I don't think Timothy ever knew a day when he said, I, didn't, I don't think I... I believed. I think if you ask him, when did you come to believe in Jesus? He'd say, I always believed in Jesus. When did your children start loving you? How old were they? They've always loved you. Now, there are moments when they don't act like it, right? But that's the sin nature. But essentially, your children loved you from the beginning because you taught them to love you. You told them. We, they love us because we first love them. And we teach them that Jesus loved them first. And so they've grown up, you know, when I, as soon as my children are articulate, and I say, do you love Jesus? Yeah. I remember having this debate with a friend some years ago. And he was insisting, children are born sinners, they, they hate God. I said, I don't think so. And about that time, his grandson walked up, had just come out of Sunday school class, and he had a paper plate around his neck. His grandson was about three. And on the paper plate, it was supposed to be a shield, you know, had a little yarn and a paper plate, and on the plate it said, I love God. And I looked down, and he looked down, the friend, and he looked at me and he said, don't say a word. <laughs> and it was funny because his wife was, had been teaching that Sunday school class and helped him make the paper plate. So... Um, uh, that's just something I want you to think about that. But I really, I really believe that God, re you say, well, how could that be? What about their hearts? Well, God says you're there to shape their hearts. 
I don't, that's the work of God. I don't see how that works. I don't know how plants grow either. I put a dead piece of dried up corn in the ground and it grows. It's magic, okay, if I can use that word in quotes, okay? Well, it's the same thing with kids. I mean, we already read a verse. Okay, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Where is it bound up? In his heart. And what's going to get it out? The rod of discipline. You mean a rod, which I think I saw one. order in worship. Um, that changes hearts when it's applied with love to the right part of the body. Okay? It's magic. It's a magic wand. Right? And I've, I've seen attitudes change with these just almost instantly. You can have a kid that's just got a really bad attitude and you can adjust their attitude with these. And they get happy and even sometimes for days. These are really incredible. We'll talk more about those magic wands in a little while. Um, um, it's possible to be believing parents yet fail to be faithful in the training of our children. When the conditions of God's covenant promise are neglected, we can expect to see disaster. And the Bible gives us some sad examples of this. 1 Kings 1, 5-6. Um, then Adoniah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Well, that statement, his father had never rebuked him. 1 Samuel 3, 11-13, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel in which both ears of, in, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Now, God may be gracious even to the worst parents by saving their children, but he doesn't promise to do so. He does promise to save the children of believing parents who diligently, not perfectly, but diligently and faithfully raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You're going to have a few bad chapters in that book, a few bad paragraphs along the way, because they're sinners. But the story, we're promised, will end well if you persist. So what I want to do in, at the, end, the rest of our first session here, and then again we're going to have an open forum here, I want to talk about your authority. Sometimes I think parents, we live in a very confused age. Parents sometimes don't realize how much authority they have. For me, my children were young teenagers. I, we were believers. I was a pastor. I believe most of this in a general way. But for me, my theology of children really changed when my children were teenagers, which was almost too late. Um, I'm thankful to report they're doing well. Okay, But I was also thankful to report that this piece of the theology made all the difference for me. 
I've seen parents who think, for example, while they're teenagers, you know, you can't do anything with teenagers. They're kind of kind of on their own. I look at how I was raised. I had Christian parents, but man, once I got a driver's license, you know, it was not a good deal. I had a friend uh, who used to say, uh, you know, they're all Christians until they get their driver's license. Because um, the idea was, oh, just go hang out with your friends and do your own thing. That's that's just not a good idea. Um, I don't care who you are. That's a, that's a bad situation and, and a dangerous one for everybody. And so to realize that even with your teenagers, even your older teenagers, as my kids learned later, as I said, as long as I'm paying so much as your cell phone bill, I, I have a say in what you do and don't do. And I will talk more about the economics of the relationship, uh, but I think biblically we see grounds for that. You know, as long as you're a dependent in any way, um, then I'm going to have a lot to say about what you do and don't do. If you're grown, grown up enough to make all your own decisions uh, without my say, then go for it. But I'm not financing that. Um, and I, I never had any takers on that, so uh, that's a good thing. As my mom used to say, I found out later when I would be upset, or one of my siblings upset with her and my dad about something, she said, I used to say to your dad, they're going to need us before we need them. And that's a good thing to remember. Okay. So your kids are going to be unhappy with you sometime. If they're not, you're not, you're doing something wrong. Okay. So the authority of parents. God requires, here's this, boy, this is, you can put this in boldface, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do to important things. God doesn't give very many things for your children that he requires of them. In fact, he gives basically two. God requires children to honor or respect and obey their parents. That's it. You can go home. Honor and obey. For this pleases the Lord. And you'll also live a long time if you do this. And he requires their parents to rule their children. So that really sums it all up. So the primary duty of children is to honor and obey. Remember we talked about in the hierarchy of superior, inferior, and equal. Superiors, I always have a duty if I'm an inferior. So I have a duty to God if I'm a husband, for example. But then I have a responsibility for everybody beneath me. Okay? Children aren't superiors. They're just inferiors. So all they have is duty. And whatever chores you give them, those become their responsibilities. That's where they learn to be superiors, whether they're going to be a father or mother, husband or whatever. But until then, you're going to give them little jobs to do to, to test their ability to be responsible. But they have one, they have, their duty is to honor you and to obey you. So... I always think it's pretty neat how God gives us really simple things. They're not easy things, but it is simple. I don't have to remember 50 things. Okay? So the question is, in any given situation, is my child honoring me? Is my child obeying me? Yes or no? In fact, just hyphenate that. Are they honoring and obeying me? Those really go together. You can't say, yeah, they're honoring me, but they're not obeying me. Okay? Though they can obey you and not honor you. Okay, so it, you have to have both. It's not enough to, 
to give outward obedience but dishonor in, in the heart or the look in the face or the roll of the eyes. Those have to go together. So honor, just hyphenate that word. So in that sense, it's one thing. It, think of honor as the inside and obedience as the outside. I need, I need the inside of them, the heart, and I need the outside of them, the compliance. And one of those without the other is not sufficient. For one thing, I can't know about the end. If it, there's no way you can say, well, they're honoring me with their heart, but not out, outwardly. God complains about Israel all the time about the, these people honor me with their lips, but not with their hearts. Okay? They can say all kinds of things and do all kinds of things, but obviously if they're not saying it or doing it, they're not honoring you either. So you're, you're going to have to have both. So... The duty of children is to honor and obey. Now, keep in mind this, too. That's children honor and obey your parents. But that also means, by extension, you're going to be teaching your children to honor and obey everybody else. Because everybody else in their life, with the exception of, and we'll talk a minute about strangers as kind of an exception, but generally speaking, the people who are in their life, extended family, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, uh, neighbors that you know, people at church, all the adults in their life, teachers, they have the same obligation because all of those people represent you as parents because you as parents have decided to let those people into their life. And so you're going to require that your children honor and obey those around you. There are exceptions. If a stranger comes up to you, you're going to teach them how to deal with that. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be disrespectful or, or whatever, but obviously they don't have to obey. Uh, somebody says, come get in the car with me. Uh, that's, those are obvious exceptions that we're talking about. But as a general rule, the trusted people in their lives that you have, the community of people that you've put them in, they're going to have the same obligations to show respect and honor and obedience. If, if an adult at church tells you to stop doing something, you need to stop. You don't look at them and say, you're not my dad or you're not my mom. That would be really bad for one of my kids. Um, they learn if they learn this you have you're well on your way to raising adults do you know any adults that haven't learned this principle they're not any fun to be around are they do you like an 18 year old who hasn't learned this or a 16 year old what do you want to do to them <laughs> don't answer <laughs> okay. you just want to smack them right Okay, that's uh, kind of the, the, the inclination. Um, <clears throat> so again, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, children, quoting the Old Testament, quoting the Ten Commandments, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That's a pretty good promise. It basically says, you want your life to go well? You want to live a long time? Honor and obey the authorities in your life. Notice the promise and the reason that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Obedience to parents results in blessings for our children. Don't we want them to be happy, healthy, and prosperous? That's it. Then teach them to honor and obey you and the other people in their lives. Uh, I mean, it's a general principle, Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Parents, you're, the, you're your child's first authority that God appointed. 
God's the ultimate authority, and he's basically said to your children, your parents represent me. And if you, as parents, don't insist on this, you, and you don't represent God in this, then you're lying about God to your children, and they're going to have a wrong view and a false view about God as they grow up. They're either going to think God's harsh and mean and, and, and doesn't love them, or they're going to think God is a big softy and kind of a Santa Claus in the sky that is there to take care of my every whim when I want it. And both of those, either of those, or any combination of those would be a false representation of who God is. And so if you do that, you're not, it's not going to turn out well. So again, implicit in this is that you're being, you're honoring and obeying your Father in heaven. That's, that's what's essential here. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So if your children don't honor and obey you, they're not honoring and obeying God, and they're going to bring judgment on themselves. Judgment isn't just, you know, a big rock falling out of heaven on your head. Judgment comes all the time in our lives when, when our lives are messy and ugly, and we have horrible relationships, and, and uh, you get fired from four jobs in a row because we don't, you know, we think the boss is stupid, and and uh, we can tell him off because he doesn't know what he's doing anyway. And there's a, you know, so we find out that that really started when they were two. And it's just still hanging around when they're 30. And it's really ugly when they're 30. Um, children are to obey their parents, not because their parents said so, but because God said so. Ultimately. I'm not just asserting my own authority. I'm here to represent what God says my children are supposed to be doing. They must obey parents that are not so bright. And what, and what child does not think he knows more than his parents at some point? They must obey parents even when they don't understand why. They must obey their parents even when their parents have sinned or failed, that is, losing their temper or not obeying God themselves, hopefully you as a parent, when you do that, you're going to ask for forgiveness and be made right. But that is never an excuse for your child to sin, even if you sin. It's important, of course, when you sin, that you do the right thing and, and, and repair that relationship. So I'm not excusing your sin, but it's never a justification. The sins of the parents don't excuse the sins of the child. Honor involves more than outward obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Matthew 15, 18, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 2 Timothy 3, 5, the Bible speaks of those who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. We are to honor our parents, not because they're necessarily respectable, but because they are our parents. Perhaps some parents are finding it difficult to have their children honor them because they don't honor their own parents. So uh, let me just pause here. Your children should never, ever hear you putting down an authority in their life. I want to be clear here. There are plenty of authorities that are knuckleheads. Okay? Let's say a school, I remember I had a school teacher when I was in high school that I believe genuinely persecuted me because I was a Christian. I believe that he gave me a, a lower grade, a C instead of an A, that I deserve, not just on one item, 
for the whole course. And pretty much the whole class agreed with that. And I complained about it to my parents. And I never knew this till I was grown. My parents went and saw the principal and had a meeting with the teacher about it and dealt with it. And it got corrected. And I never knew that. And I'm just saying that's really the way it should be. My parents' view was, and I think they're absolutely right, if a teacher tells you to do something or an adult, unless they're calling you to sin or do something illegal or whatever, you just do it. And if, if you have a problem, you come tell me about it and we'll, and we'll deal with it. But if, they're, if you're riding down the car and you're complaining about the teacher or the pastor or the policeman or whatever, what a jerk he was or whatever, uh, they're listening and you're teaching them right then how they should handle authority they don't agree with in life. So y'all go talk in the bedroom with each other, but not in front of the kids. Your goal, remember, is to teach them to do what? Honor and obey. Honor and obey. And if there's an injustice, you have a process of appeal. Come to me. You tell me about a teacher that didn't treat you fair or, or some injustice. And then I, as your representative, as your parent, will, will decide what the right way to deal with that is. Does that make sense? Um, when you undermine other authorities in the lives of your kids, you're undermining your own authority. The primary duty of parents, then, is to rule or oversee. Um, our children are not our peers, and therefore we must, not, we must avoid peer friendship. We are their friends, but we are not their friends in the sense of being their peers. Casey, we're going to take a break in just a minute. We'll bring another chair here in just a second. Does that make sense? Sometimes people get this, people know, okay, I know I'm not supposed to be my kid's friend. Okay, don't be their buddy. But you can, you can be friendly and you can be their friend, but you're always their father and mother first. Okay, I remember a teacher giving some advice I thought was good some years ago. said, when I have a new class for the first six weeks, I never joke around with the kids. I'm always, I have rules and we're, I'm, friend, I'm friendly, but not we're not buddies. And then after that, once I've established my authority, then I can lighten up, but I can always instantly bring it back to, all right, that's enough. Let's stop, okay? And I can bring it back to where I need to. So your parents first. If parents don't understand the nature of the parent-child relationship, then we cannot expect our children to know the difference. As Abraham was the friend of God, yet he was not God's peer, so too, parents are their children's friends, but this is not a peer friendship. We're not their buddies. We're not their equals, okay? We always occupy a superior position. We're condescending to them in the good sense of that word. That is, we're stepping down. We're talking on their level. We're, we're dealing with the two-year-old as a two-year-old. And so that's what we should do. We should get down on the floor and play with them and talk with them and and read things to them at their level. But uh, in that way, we're their friends. Christian parents are God's appointed representatives to speak to their children. Therefore, it's primarily God's word that we speak to them directly and indirectly. I don't mean we're always quoting a Bible verse, but we're always speaking to them the truths that are contained in the Bible. And we've looked at Deuteronomy 6 about you know, what we talked about, the word of God permeating your house. Remember, you're God's representatives to your children what they know and think of God, they will learn from you. How, you. how you administer justice when there's a conflict. Was it fair? Was it just? Or was it angry? 
Was it revengeful? How was it delivered? That's how they're going to think of God. God has delegated much authority to parents, and it must be taken seriously. And if you take it seriously, your children will take it seriously. Exodus 21:17, And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Many Christians are not aware of what Jesus says about this, or if they are, they're embarrassed about it, and we shouldn't be. It's in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. Jesus said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition, speaking to the Pharisees. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, it is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So in this passage, what is, what is it that Jesus has a problem with? It wasn't uh, uh, the death penalty for children who curse their parents. He has a problem, rather, with their setting aside God's requirements to honor parents, which the Pharisees had done. This law is a good example of how people sit in judgment of God rather than having their own judgments conform to his standards. Um, I'm going to do, let me have five minutes here and we'll take a break. Cautions in the exercise and limits of authority. Parental authority is delegated by God and therefore is governed by God. You don't have unlimited authority. This is my house and you'll do what, no, this is God's house and you, father and husband and mother, will do what God says you're to do. That's the standard. Let every soul, that would include you, be subject to the governing authorities, and in case of parents, that would be God over you. Parents may not be arbitrary in their rule, but must recognize that they themselves are under a higher authority. That is the law of God. That's why if you do sin, your children should see you do what you should do when you sin, which is ask forgiveness and, and ask God for forgiveness and, and correct it. You're under authority. They ought to, you ought to be modeling for them what that looks like. Okay? Parents uh, do not have the authority to sin against their children. Obviously, this, by definition, prohibits all forms of abuse. And parents do not have the authority to require their children to sin. So you can't sin against your children in your discipline or instruction, and you can't require them to sin. Authority involves two things. The power to make the rules, doctrine, and the power to enforce the rules, discipline. Doctrine and discipline. That's what authority is. You you make the rules and you enforce the rules. That's authority. If you can't make the rules, you're not an authority. And if you can't enforce the rules, you have no authority. It's those two things together. Here's the standard, and I enforce the standard. Avoiding the extremes of authoritarianism and sentimentalism. Sometimes this happens between a father and a mother. And by the way, it can go either way. Sometimes it's the mother that's the authoritarian and the father that's sentimental. Usually it's the other way around, but not always. And then what's going to happen, if y'all aren't together as parents on this, and I don't mean you're going to be 100% all the time, but if you know you have a tendency to be one way or the other, God gave you, if, he gave, if you're a 
tend to be on the authoritarian side. God may have given you a wife to help pull you back a little bit, dial you down 10%. On the other hand, if you're overly sentimental, oh, sweetie, honey, I think they're just having a rough day. You know, I think they're tired. That's why they stomped their foot and threw the banana against the wall. But, you know, they, they, just, they, were, they had a hard day at school today. Okay? Then you need somebody probably in your life that says, no, that was disobedience. That was disrespect. That's unacceptable. I don't care what kind of day they had. Hopefully, you're going to work together because if you don't, you're going to get further and further apart. You'll start compensating for each other. Daddy's too hard, and so I'm going to make up for it when Daddy's not around, sweetie pie. And Daddy, because he sees that, thinks you're too soft, and so I'm going to make up for it by toeing the line. And then pretty soon, the kids are being pulled in totally different directions, and you're not one. So have those discussions in private and try to get on the same page. And husbands, I'd urge you to listen. God gave you a wife for a reason. You need a helper. Wives, you listen. God gave you a head of the household for a reason. You have different gifts and abilities. You need to be working together. Avoid the extremes of authoritarianism and sentimentalism. Godly authority is gentle in manner, resolute in purpose. Godly authority is not tyrannical, but like Christ, is a servant. It's always seeking the good of those who are under my authority. Godly authority loves the objects of that authority. Requiring obedience because this is what God requires of children, because this is what's good for your children and will lead to their happiness and their success, that they may live long in the land. Children do not, in the long run, resist authority that is selfless and kind. Children do not, in the long run, resist authority that is selfless and kind. And then finally here, recognizing the inequality of children. This is real quick. Treating them differently. You should treat your children differently. That may sound odd. You should have the same standards for all your children. But they have different personalities. They are different ages, different genders, different circumstances, different needs. Wisdom recognizes that. You're going to hear the complaint, but you let him do it. And you're going to say, yes, I did, because he can handle it and you can't. He's older and you're not. And I decided to let him because, and I decided to not let you because. And I have no obligation here to treat everybody exactly the same. I do have an obligation to treat them with respect and to treat them justly and appropriately. But you're making judgments, not just about individual children, but about your whole household. About, okay, I'm going to let you stay up till 10 o'clock, but you're going to bed at 9 o'clock. Because when you don't get nine hours of sleep, you're a grump, and you make everybody unhappy, and you can stay up to 10, and you're just fine. That's a reasonable judgment. Okay? Wisdom knows the difference. Pharisees like, you know, give me ten things and I can check off and then I can feel good about myself. But wisdom doesn't work that way. Matthew 6, 8, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Parents, that should be descriptive of you toward your children. What little child have you said, it's time for bed? I'm not sleepy. (coughs) I watched that yesterday at my house with Sylvie. Erin uh, was there, and she was obviously having a meltdown <coughs> because, you know, they said, okay, we're gonna, you need to go take a nap. 
I said, what's she fussing about? She's not tired. <laughs> you know, but she was clearly, you know, at that point because she went on to sleep pretty quickly. Uh, Ephesians 3.20, who is, able, who is able to do abund- exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's our Father. And that's the way our children ought to see us, is that we are there to uh, address those things. Father, we thank you for these truths. Help us to apply them and to understand them and to be serious about the authority you've given us over our children. Help our children to learn to honor and obey us and all those who are over them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a break. All right, let's, uh, let's go. I'm going to ask to indulge you for 10 minutes, and then we'll take 30 minutes here to, for open forum, questions, and whatever. Just some quick things, training children, some general principles. Um, some of these we've, I've already stated, but I'm just going to reemphasize here. God's law rules the entire household. When I say law, I mean God's word. All of God's word is law and gospel. It's both good news. See, when we do what God says to do, it's good news. It's a blessing to us. None of God's laws are burdensome to his people. They're always a blessing. God gives us rules. It's like a train on the tracks. That's where it runs the best. That's how it gets where it's going. And when you say, no, I don't like those, I don't like rules, well, then you're, gonna, you're not going to get very far. So God's law rules husbands and wives. It rules fathers and mothers. It rules children. Uh, the parents, as agents of God, are administers of God's law in the household. Think of yourselves as governors, with God being the king. And this is your little city, your little serfdom, uh, and these are your subjects uh, there that you're to rule over. Um, and so the child is not only being restrained and controlled, but molded to reflect a positive form of righteousness. And so the authority and power of the parents can constrain and force subjection to the point where the child yields an obedience, yet without a heart for the parents. And so remember, that's going to always be the goal, is to continue to do it. Now, there are moments, obviously, in this whole process when you're having a showdown where the first thing you've got to get is outward conformity, and then you're going to work from there. Maybe it's an unpleasant moment uh, for everybody, but then it's, it leads to some, hopefully some brokenness and repentance and tears and some restoration in the process. So I'm not suggesting that they're going to be happy about everything you require them to do. There will clearly be moments where rebellion uh, comes up and the instant response isn't going to be, oh, Father, what may I do to please you? Uh, that'd be great. That will be the long-term goal. But you are going to require outward conformity, even if the heart's not there yet, because in the process of obedience, the heart will you Obedience comes first, by the way. You see, God doesn't say, obey me, obey me if you feel like it. He says, obey me. It'd be great if you feel like it. As we used to tell our daughters, I keep forgetting I have a daughter sitting here, okay? Uh, you can clean your room happy or unhappy, okay? Uh, happy is a whole lot easier for you and us, but you are going to clean your room. So the sooner you choose to do it happy, uh, the faster it'll go, the better it'll go for you and everybody else. But cleaning the room is not an option, okay? And we're working on the happiness part. And if you can't be happy, you've got to act happy, okay? So, um, so here, parents hold the greatest position of influence over human, other human beings. I'm going to give you some real quick ones here. Number one, consider how long the child is under your influence. It's not that you have them for a week or two weeks. 
Um, that's, by the way, why divorced parents and having two weeks visitation every other weekend work so great. Okay? It doesn't work. It's a bad idea. Um, that's why you need a mommy and a daddy that love each other, that love God, who are there all the time doing this day in and day out for a long time, 18, 20 years or so. Um, the goal, of course, is maturity. All right, second, uh, parents also have the advantage of total, the total dependence of the child, especially as they're infants, and toddlers, little children. As they grow older, the idea is for them not to be as uh, dependent upon you, but to learn to self-govern and to do things without you having to tell them everything to do. But when you think about it early on, for quite a while, you control what they eat, what they go to bed, what they watch, what they read, who their friends are, where they go to church, their curriculum. You, you've got absolute, so you've got a long time, and you have total control over the input, if you'll take it. Okay? Again, not to be tyrannical, you should be wise, and we're going to talk about some of these finer points as we go along and why it's important that you remember the goal isn't to say, well, I'm going to maintain total tyrannical control over every detail so that when all of a sudden they're 20, I'm going to throw them out into the world and let them figure out how to do it on their own. Or they get, you know, they get to the point where as adults there's this desire to be married or to be out on our own, but, you know, my mom and dad, you know, won't let me. At some point you have a different kind of rebellion that comes up. So you're, you're training them to be adults, to be self-governed, the child is naturally impatient and self-centered, and so remember selfishness is the epitome of immaturity. So you're going to be teaching, a lot of what you're going to be teaching them is how to deny themselves and not always have instant gratification. You don't always get your way. There are other people in this household. Your behavior impacts other people. You do have to share. Okay? No, you can't have seconds. Uh, yes, you do have to do your job and do it cheerfully and do it now. And then you can play. And no, you can't play forever. Uh, you can't play till midnight. You have to stop. You've got five more minutes. And then you have to stop. And then you have to go do something else. There are all kinds of things, and all of those are to teach them self-governance, uh, selflessness, service. Number three, parents have the advantage of the supreme ignorance of their children. You know more than they do. Along, there's another part of that. You're stronger than they are. Okay? Um, so you're bigger than they are, you're stronger than they are, and you're smarter than they are. You are smarter than a fifth grader. Maybe not on every little point, but you're still their parents, and you know more than they know, and you have the advantage. That's a pretty big advantage. I'm just I'm encouraging you here, okay? I'm <laughs> telling you, you're in charge, you can do it. God has equipped you to do that. You're a grown-up, and they aren't, so you be the grown-up. Um, they are born knowing nothing. And for those familiar with the classical model learning, all they have is the grammar stage. Um, you're in a position of providing them with information and the environment whereby they will gain the knowledge they have. This is the stuff that their worldviews are built from. I'm just going to make a comment here. We need to talk about this more later. Please don't use video games and television as electronic babysitters, except on rare occasions. Don't let that be a habit. It's a bad idea. Uh, it just, it's easy. It's cheap. It's, uh, but it's dangerous. Uh, you think, well, they're in there watching Dora the Explorer. Well, you watch enough Dora the Explorer, they're being taught some things. And if you don't know what they're being taught, I, your kids should be exposed to some things here and there 
that are not exactly what you want, but you need to be there to help instruct them as to what's wrong with this or that. So this isn't about, you know, sticking them in a cave somewhere and never having them hear anything that's outside of your, your narrow position, uh, but it is teaching them how, and not just engulfing them in something and having a cheap way of, of taking, okay, they're, they're on my nerves. If I give them a video game and let them go play for two hours, they don't bother me. Uh, that's, a, that's the bad idea. Fourth, parents should not make the mistake of thinking a child must know and understand before obedience is required. You should not make the mistake of thinking they must know and understand before obedience is required. I want them to know, I want them to understand, but that's not a requirement for obedience. Obedience is required first, and knowledge and understanding may or may not come in time. As they get older, hopefully that's going to be part here. I want you to do this. Why? You've taught them how to ask that respectfully, not disrespectfully, not rebelliously. Okay? The minute it becomes a rebellious why, then the answer is because I said so. Okay? You don't deserve an answer to why when you're disrespectful. When you're respectful, you, can, you may always ask a, a respectful question. Okay? And if the answer is, well, I'm not going to explain it right now. What, what I need right now from you is fast obedience. Another concept we'll talk about. Not just obedience, but fast obedience. I don't need to count to ten. I don't need to tell you eight times. You don't need to wait till my voice gets loud before you actually do it. But fast obedience is what's required. Okay, number five, and this will be our last one here for this. Parents have a constant oversight over children. Talking about the authority you have. We're still talking about this. Okay, you got them for a long time. They don't know anything. Let me see what the others are here. Um, uh, you have the you have the advantage of their supreme ignorance. Uh, they don't have to understand or know before they obey. And then finally, you have constant oversight over your children. Uh, it's the closest thing to omnipresence any other human being has. Your children ought to believe that you really have eyes in the back of your head. How did you know? Okay. Um, it's the supervision of love. Seeking to provide providential protection. Uh, like we say of God himself, in him we live and move and have our being. Mother and father are omnipresent. So too the child regards the watchful eye of the parents. If you're responsible for, you are responsible for your children all the time. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Well, I didn't know where they were. I didn't know who they were with. I didn't know what they were watching. I didn't realize they were reading that. Okay, that's going to happen sometimes, by the way. That ought to be an aberration, though. That ought not be a regular occurrence. Um, you may not abdicate your responsibility or oversight and turn your children over to unknown and unapproved forces. Uh, it includes their friends and video games and cartoons and all that. And I want to say, I'm not against video games, I'm not against cartoons, and I'm sure not against friends. But I'm saying whatever influences your kids have, you need to know what they are and what, what's going on there and not be uninformed and, and just look the other way. Big, big, big mistakes get made to children by simple neglect, by not paying attention to the little things. Little things always become big things. And if they're good little things, they become big, good, good big things. And if they're bad little things, they become big bad things. Almost everything starts out little. 
There is no portion of your child's life where you are free to look the other way. You're responsible. So, all right, let's, uh, let's just open up now to questions. We've been, mainly been talking about authority, so we can certainly take questions in that area. Uh, and, and so you'll know where we're going. We're going to have a whole session just on discipline. And we're going to talk about things like family worship. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, teenagers and uh, transition from teenage to adulthood, some of those things. Um, but uh, we could hit on some of those. But just so you know, those are separate lessons coming up. So anything we've talked to up to now or anything else, your turn. I'm going to stand up in a minute. Well, I, yes, but only for like an hour. <laughs> well, that's all right. I'm, right now I've been meeting with every teenager in our church uh, for about an hour each, and I, we've got a bunch of them, so I'm not through them all yet, but I'm about a little over halfway now. I don't see what the problem is. They seem pretty nice to me. What? It is. Well, it's where I tell you what it is about teenagers, even young teenagers like you have, uh, is that now you're getting about to have what you've been doing tested in a, in a new way. You know, when they're little, you have a problem, but it's usually a momentary problem, and you can fix it uh, pretty quickly if you're paying attention. But obviously, as they get older, uh, the consequences are bigger, and, and there's bigger dangers out there. Of course, it's, it's not as bad as it's going to get, because as they become 18, 20, and so forth, as they become adults, that's where it really gets tested, you know, when they become fathers and mothers and, and that kind of thing. So that's why it's scary. Uh, I was riding in, my, in the car with my dad, taking him to Houston on Monday last week, and dad's 81, and we've had a lot of great times to talk and he said well you know uh, when you were 14 I said to you you know you've never been 14 I said let me finish this I've never been 14 and you've never been the father of a 14 year old he said oh you remember that I said I use that all the time (laughs) I said but I remember I said I use a lot of things you told me that you didn't think I was listening to so I'll remind you your teenagers they're listening they don't it doesn't always seem to stick right away but um, that's right every new and, and not only uh, have you never been the parents of a 14-year-old, um, Emma's how old? 14. Yeah, today. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, so you've never been the parents of a 14-year-old girl, but you've never been the 14, parents of a 14-year-old Annabelle either. And you've never been, you know, every child is different. So every, you're always on the cusp of a new experience. What else? Any questions? Is that a, sca- a scratch or a question? All right. You got a bid? <laughs> we were at an auction last night. Be careful. You may buy something. Um, any questions about authority? About Yes. Obey them, but it's, it's hard 
Right. Yeah, let's just let's take that's a good question because it, it comes up a lot and every every relationship varies. Obviously, the ideal thing is to have everybody on the same page, and to the degree you can sit down with grandparents or aunts or whoever's around. And uh, I mean, you got a situation here where the Berkeys and Terrells live next door to each other, and they're not identical, but they they, they go to the same church, they, they they have a lot of the same ideas and goals, and that's really helpful to have a community that's fully supportive. That's why church is important and so forth. But but when you have a situation where everybody's not on the same page or they have different views for a variety of reasons, you have to manage that in, a, in several ways. You can talk to them and say, you know, um, we are really working with our children on this particular thing, not, you know, not letting them just run, run crazy. So it would really be helpful to us if, if that starts happening, if you'd help help us calm them down. Or, I, there's a lot of ways you could just have that conversation, especially on particular issues. Sometimes there are issues that uh, maybe your parents or, or set of grandparents may not like the way you discipline your children or they think some rule you have is too hard or whatever. You you just have to manage the time with them. And you, sometimes as your children get older, you, I remember my parents saying, all right, your grandparents are coming over. And don't you think that because they're here, you can do whatever you want? Because if you do, when they leave, <laughs> uh, and as they get older, you can deal with things a little more in the future, like two hours later. I told you not to do that, and you did it, and so we're going to go deal with that now. Um, so you, you, you both talk to your children about what's expected. You set that standard. They know you're going to enforce it. The ideal thing is that you can enforce it on the spot. So if they're doing something you told them not to do, you may take them back to the bedroom and deal with that uh, while the parents are there. But if sometimes I realize that it's not always an ideal situation, you might have to deal with it later. So wisdom is one of those hard things, but I do think, uh, I have seen some occasions where parents would just say, well, I don't want my children ever left with their grandparents. I think that's a bad idea, unless there's abuse or something. If it's just because they're too permissive, unless they're permitting them to do something dangerous or specifically, you know, really out of bounds. If they come back swearing, you know, or something, you know, okay, we need to we need to manage this. Yes. Can I tell a joke? Some of you heard it. I'm going to pause this. Okay. All right, we're back on the record now. Um, so sometimes kids miss the point, but uh, so you parents. I like to say, Christy, you just have to look at it. Sometimes you have to manage it by a time. Say, okay, 30 minutes is all we can do, or an hour, or maybe not overnight. Or, you know, you're going to have to look and manage it. Either you say, we need to be sure one of us is there, or we can do it for an hour or two, but if it's half a day, they seem to just kind of, it takes us three days to get over that. Um, you're just going to have to manage that. But I, would, I think it would be an extreme case where you just say, we're not going to, be around them at all. The irony is we're here learning how to parent our children better while our children are it's all being undone. <laughs> well, another way to look at that is now you're going to have this new challenge to go home and <laughs> learn how to apply these things. Yeah. We had some issues with that with one set of our children's grandparents. <laughs> 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 Yeah. 
that's that, that behavior instead of at, at first it's, it's tempting to say, okay, we're just going to wait it out for the next half hour. But I think when we finally started thanking the kids for that, in not necessarily in the grandparents' presence, but with them there, then they know, oh, I've caused little Johnny to get a thanking. That seemed to that seemed to help reinforce to them that because they don't want that to happen to their dear yeah. And they, well, it is, and I think that's a good point, and I don't think it was us. Um, uh, in fact, I think I said, I'll keep your children as long as I know that I can spank them. So, uh, um, though I don't have to, that's right. I don't, you don't have to do it, as grandparents, you don't have to do it very often. They just need to know that you, you can and you will if you need to. Uh, but, I do think that's a good point, and that's sometimes. And then parents might complain. Oh, well, you know, I think you. That's when you have an adult conversation with your parents, and you get alone, and you say, "Mom and Dad, I really love you, but I need your support in this. We, I'm open to listen to you, but we love our children. We didn't do this because we don't love them, but I really need you to help me. We're really working on them with this particular behavior." I think most of the time they'll, they may not like it, and like you said, then they may avoid those situations. I remember one with Erin Berkey in particular because my daughter Kristen, when she would come, we first moved to Nacogdoches. Erin was how old was Erin? He must have been two. And he wouldn't. We're talking about teaching respect. And so Kristen said, I'd always get Aaron Berkey a spanking because <laughs> she said I would speak to him and he wouldn't speak. And then Kara would say, Aaron, look at Miss Kristen and talk to her. And he wouldn't and she'd take him off and paddle his canoe and bring him back and then he'd have to finally do it. So Kristen said, I don't know, I'm afraid to say anything to Aaron because I don't want to get him a spanking. So uh, <laughs> um, anyway, what else? Somebody else? Yes. What about Now that I wouldn't put up with. I would go to them privately and say, you know, I need that to stop. You got a problem with me? Please come talk to me. I know, I know, I know. Families are tough things to manage, and, and wisdom requires you to handle these in different ways. I would probably gently, not in a in an angry way, but I again, depending on the relationship, you just go, can I talk to you a minute? You know. I realize you might not agree with everything that I'm trying to do with the kids or a particular thing. I'd be happy to sit down and have a conversation with you about it. But I'm, I'm really going to ask one thing of you, that you not have that discussion in front of my children. And then you, I mean, if it's extreme, you just say, well, my kids can't be around you. But it has to be, I think, fairly extreme. Again, you can manage time, location. There was a difference between whether I'm at their house or whether they're at my house. So if they come to my house, I have much more control than I do if I go to their house, where it's their rules and their household. It's a lot harder for me to enforce. So I can manage by sometimes both in terms of location. I can manage duration. Uh, we're going to stop by for 15 minutes, and we're going to leave so that we did stop by. We didn't just completely cut somebody off, but we're not going to be there for three hours where all this stuff starts to unfold. Um, I'm going to... 
I say this in quotations. I hope everybody understands when I say threaten their children. God threatens us with this loving threats. It's like, I'm going to kill you if you act up at Aunt Susie's today. Um, you know, uh, but you, you give them that warning right before you get out of the car and you go in for your 15, 20, 30 minute visit. Here's what I expect. You know, you make sure you've rehearsed your expectations. And if you can, perhaps you delay enforcement, maybe not in front of Aunt Susie, because you know Aunt Susie's going to have a bad reaction there. And so managing relationships and circumstances is going to be important in other ways when your children have friends. What about other kids at church who don't do it the way you do it? You're going to tell you that you can't talk to Johnny over there. That's not a good idea. Okay, what you need to do is teach your son how to talk to Johnny and manage Johnny. Don't just let him run off with Johnny out behind the church somewhere for two hours while you stay inside and don't know what's going on. That's a bad idea. Okay, but so I don't know, managing the situation is important, really. I had uh, I was actually going to just uh, read something out of the scriptures here if it's all right about No, we don't do that here. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to read this about story and this kind of go along with your question, Christian. It's talking about Jesus. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days that they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. This is in week two. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Then Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. And it seems to be that he was chastised, corrected, wrongly in the text that they actually made wrong judgment but Jesus being the perfect child was subject to them so I just say this I think you need to always limit other influences other uh, authorities in yours to a certain degree but know that your authority is subject to sin. And so therefore your parents are going to be subject to sin. And so I just say this, that there is a certain amount of any time you trust your kids with anybody, of them so-so screwing them up. And that kind of sounds rough, but any time you send your kids to school, you send them to vacation Bible school, and, and sometimes even when they're in your own house, so I'm not saying that you shouldn't limit your you know, influences or this belief, but it's to some degree your children are just learning to be respectful to bad authority or even nominally good authority 
Yeah, I'd say too, you know, some of the worst influences your kids are going to have are peers <laughs> along the way. And so, seriously, a lot of the challenge of parenting is, again, not, not, remember, ignorance and innocence are not the same thing. Okay? So your kids are going to be exposed to all kind of bad circumstances. Your job is to teach them how to manage those. So when you go to Grandma's house, when you go to Aunt Susie's house, I know that they let their kids jump, you know, swing from the chandeliers. Okay? But you may not do that. You're my kid. These are our rules. So do you understand? If I see you swinging from the chandelier, then when we get home, uh, you're going to be disciplined. Do you understand me? So your job is to manage your kid in all kinds of circumstances. Because remember, what's the goal? To send them out the door. They're going to leave you, and someday they're going to have to make those decisions about what to do and what not to do all by themselves. And you're teaching them how, just because you're out with your friends and they decide to get drunk, doesn't mean you can. You have a different set of rules. You have a different expectation. So these are really opportunities to teach your kids there. I see some hands over here. Are you just fixing your head? Okay. All right. What else? Well, time's gone by fast, right? To me. I don't know about to you. Go for it. you got a long time. That's the other thing. I think this is a really powerful point, for, especially if you have little kids or you're new at this. Sometimes our parents don't understand. But they will in time if you're loving and faithful and patient with them. That's new to them. They've never been the father and mother of whatever old you are with grandkids. Um, 
my parents were somewhat the same way. Um, theologically, I think we were... Uh, I'm very, very appreciative of godly parents, but theologically they were pretty shallow at the time. they really come a long way. I think partly because of what God was doing in our lives. And for a long time they didn't understand every choice we were making about Christian education or homeschooling or Christian schools or they didn't understand. And they would tell you, I don't understand. It's kind of odd. <laughs> okay. Um, but by the time they were, you know, 8, 10, they said, we, don't, we still don't understand, but we sure do like what we're seeing. And they, I think that, in the end, you know, is like now that they're grown and they've got uh, how many great-grandkids now? I forgot, 16, okay. Um, they, they just, they just are, they love it. I mean, it's just like, okay, you know, y'all done so much better than we did. So fruit in time, just doing it, and then they start to see it, and especially if you're in a family where they have other kids to compare to uh, that aren't having that training, by the time they're teenagers, it'll really show up. And, uh, well, respect the authority you mentioned, the distinction between the excesses of uh, authoritarianism and sentimentalism. sentimentalism. And our grandparents have been total sentimentalism, and you see they act on that almost exclusively. And it's really it's disturbing to watch. Yeah. My own children be uh, guided by pure sentiment. Yeah. And you see it just. Well, being a grandparent, is anybody else in this room a grandparent? Okay. Well, besides her. <laughs> As I told, somebody said, I'm, I'm not disturbed that I'm a, I have grandchildren. It's that I'm married to a grandmother. <laughs> um, a wonderful grandmother. The uber-grandmother, I might add. Okay. But, um, but... I think it is a delight, I think. I'll let my daughter speak here if she agrees or disagrees, but it's certainly a lot easier and better if you have grandparents that do uphold the same standard. I mean, 99% of the time, well, maybe not that much, 90% of the time, I hand them, if they're misbehaving, especially if it's anything serious, I just hand them over to their parents and say, here, he was throwing a brick at his brother or something, you know? Um no, no, it's usually a rock or something. There's not any bricks. Uh, uh, but I don't have any qualms about grabbing them and dealing with it myself either. They know that. They approve of that. It, it's, it's obviously the more you can have a church and your extended family and everybody in their life on the same page, the in-laws, I mean, the more you get, the better. And that's our goal is to see communities develop. I'll say this about church, about if you need to be in a place where I want to know that pretty much everybody around me has the same standard. And I'd say in terms of our church, I would say, as I'm looking at the ones that are here that are members, you know, um, let me back up. When we were, when we had younger kids and I was in a similar kind of church situation, there wasn't, there wasn't anybody that I not only wouldn't have welcomed their correcting my children, I expected them to. Um, but so often we get in a situation, oh, I can't say anything. That's their kids, and they'll be offended if I say anything. Look, my view is if you see my kid doing something he's not supposed to be doing, you either stop him and you come get me and I'll stop him. Uh, we're not, you know, I want that kind of input from the community. 
it, it's like extending my eyes and ears. Okay? And as a pastor, I don't, I'm not hesitant to take, I love these kids. And if I see one of them doing something I know their mom and daddy don't approve of, I, I'll, I will take them by the hand and take them to their mom and daddy and say he was doing some of y'all are shaking your head because I've done that with you, right? <laughs> um, yeah, well, in your case, I do a, a lot. So, uh, um, what if you see them doing something that you don't approve of, but their parents do? Well, then I would still, well, if I knew their parents approved of it and I didn't approve of it, now that's a tricky question because I happen to be the pastor. So what I would do is I'd go talk to the parents and say, do you really approve of, of such and such? Okay. Um, I have a thing, I'll probably get on some of your nerves, I don't like kids running in the church because people get hurt. And I'm always, stop running, stop running. I know kids, I'm not mad at them, it's just like, go outside and you can run all you want, but in here, you're going to run into somebody or get clobbered in the face and just stop. Um, so that might be the kind of thing that somebody says, oh, he's always on them about that. Well, you know, we're going to disagree from time to time about minor things. But if I thought it was something serious, I'd come talk to you at the end of the day. Here's what I'd say. You're the parents. You get to make the call. Um, and I'd say that for all of us. We, to, it, we should be able to talk to each other about some things we don't agree on. And you may think bedtime ought to be 8, and somebody else thinks it ought to be at 9, and maybe somebody else doesn't have bedtime. Uh, different every night. That's your choices. There's a lot of liberty within what God has, that's what we're talking about today in church, about liberty, okay? There are, uh, do you have to eat everything on your plate or three more bites? Uh, do you have to, you know, do you get to check anything off the I don't eat that list uh, or is everything on there? I mean, those are judgment calls made by families. You need to know why and, and enforce those standards for yourself and not insist on everybody else. All right, we're out of time. It's 7 o'clock. Um, next week we'll go we've got two more sessions so next week skip a week and then we'll come back and hopefully wrap up uh, we're not again this is a big subject we could go for weeks and weeks and weeks but hopefully this will just get you thinking and talking and if you want I'll give you some things that you may want to read that will extend this Father we thank you again for uh, your word we thank you for your people we thank you for these families that are gathered that have a concern to raise their children to love you we pray for them, I pray for them, that you would strengthen them and give them wisdom, give them a love for each other and for you as they love their children, and give them uh, the strength and courage and faith to press forward day in and day out in all the little things. Help them to see the, these big items like respect or honor and obedience uh, and enforce those in their children so that their children will have joyful, long, prosperous lives. Um, Lord, we commit these children to you, that you and ask that you would work in each and every heart, that they indeed would love you with their hearts and, and grow up to be great men and women of God to serve you, to serve in this world for the kingdom's sake. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.